Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe. Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, July 23rd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. And later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the conclusion of the African National Congress Women's League National Elective Conference that was held this weekend in Nasrak in Johannesburg, Republic of South Africa. Fires in Greece uh, are causing large-scale evacuations from a heavily visited tourist area. There was an airstrike on alleged insurgents in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. We'll have details on that as well. And Ethiopia and China have met to discuss peace-building operations around the globe. In the second hour, we look at the role of subsidies in Africa and whether they are causing economic problems. Finally, we look back on the 56th anniversary of the Black Rebellion's of 1967. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude in the West African state of Gambia uh, with the artist Sona Jubarte. This is from her latest album entitled Fasia.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music uh, from the West African state of Gambia uh, with uh, the artist Sona Jubarte uh, from Gambia. And that's uh, from the album entitled Fasia. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. This special edition uh, of our program uh, for Sunday, July 23rd, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current situation in the Republic of South Africa. The Eastern Cape's uh, Nukuzola CCC Tolashi has been elected the ANC Women's League president at his 13th national conference. She defeated uh, KwaZulu-Natal's Tambeka Mchuno and former league president Batabili Klamini. Tolashi received 1,729 votes compared to Mshunu, uh, 1,038, and Klamini's 170 votes. The results were announced uh, just a few hours ago at the NASRAC Expo Center in Johannesburg, uh, where the women had been holding their internal contests. Tolashi uh, had been the front runner of the race, uh, garnering well over 1,000 nominations uh, from the African National Congress Women's League branches. Tulashi's uh, victory is a win for those who were defeated by Batabile and her core back in 2015 uh, when she unseated former League President Angie uh, Mosheka uh, to control the powerful Women's League. She did face a threat, though, uh, when someone the faction made up of backers of party president Cyril Ramaphosa and Mosheka deflected, uh, resulting in uh, Mshunu becoming a third way in the race. Last-minute attempts for Mshunu and Klamini to work together also failed. This with Klamini's supporters accusing the ANC member of parliament being too arrogant for refusing to stand down in order to back Klamini. Some have suggested a deal between the pair should see Klamini being elected as the first additional member or even nominated for a top post should the bid for a constitutional amendment to increase the number of officials from five to six passed. However, the latter suggestion is impossible as the ANC's constitution, which also applies to the league, dictates that changes to the constitution of its structures should be tabled at least three months ahead of a conference in order for them to be considered. The conference was plagued by several delays, with delegates uh, still yet to vote uh, for additional members who will form part of the African National Congress Women's League 40-member National Executive Committee. It'll follow uh, the example set at the ANC's uh, 55th National Conference in December last year of catching up remaining issues and completing the gathering through hybrid uh, platforms. Now, uh, in other news, uh, in Greece, high winds forecast uh, for earlier today were expected to hamper firefighters' battle to contain a blaze burning out of control on the Greek island of Rhodes, uh, sparking the biggest ever fire 
evacuation in Greece. The island of Rhodes is one of Greece's most popular tourist destinations, particularly with uh, British, German, and French tourists, many of whom are now uh, being rapidly moved out of the path of the flames. As Greece has been battered uh, by an extended spell of extreme heat, flames have burned uh, for nearly a week on the island. Quote, we had to evacuate an area of 30,000 people, unquote, said Constantia Demoglidou, a Greek police spokesman, spokeswoman. Uh, she told this to the Asian France press, adding that everything had gone, quote, smoothly, unquote. <clears throat> quote, this is the biggest fire evacuation ever in Greece, unquote. <clears throat> police, <clears throat> police said that authorities uh, had transported uh, some 16,000 people across land with 3,000 evacuated by sea and others fleeing by road or under their own transport after being told to leave the area. Authorities have warned that the battle to contain the flames raging in the middle of peak tourism season will take several days. Fire Department spokesman Vasilis Vakrakoyanis warned that winds were set to become, quote, more intense, unquote, through Sunday which could further fan the flames. Last year, Rhodes, uh, which has a population of over 100,000, welcomed some 2.5 million tourist arrivals. The fires uh, reached the village of Liarma during the night, engulfing houses and a church, uh, while many hotels were damaged by flames that had reached to the coast. Earlier today, the blaze was burning in three active fronts, including on the southeast coast, of the island where firefighters tried to prevent the fire from crossing a creek. They were receiving help <clears throat> by air from helicopters, Chinooks, and air tractors. <clears throat> Efforts are focusing on, on preventing the fire from spreading further north into the dense forest. Uh, tourists and some locals spent the night in gyms, schools, and hotel conference centers on the island as firefighters battled the blaze. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Horn of Africa, state of Somalia, uh, the government and the United States said uh, on Thursday that their forces killed five Al-Shabaab militants in an airstrike conducted in a remote area near Har-Rir-Kaleh in central Somalia. The Somalian government and the United States Africa Command, AFRICOM, said in a statement that the self-defense strike, which was carried out uh, on Wednesday at the request of the Somalian government, was in support of the Somalian National Army uh, forces who were engaged in the terrorist organ who, who were engaged by the terrorist organization. "Quote: U.S. Africa Command uh, will continue to assess the results of this operation and will provide additional information as appropriate." Specific details about the units involved and assets used will not be released in order to ensure operation security, unquote, the AFCOM said in a statement. The latest airstrike came amid intensified onslaught against al-Shabaab since Somalian President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud declared an all-out war against the militants last year. The airstrike have largely targeted al-Shabaab figureheads who are based in southern and central Somalia, where the group still maintains a strong grip in some regions. And finally, we, uh, Wang Yi, uh, director of the Office of Foreign Affairs Commission of the Communist Party of the Central Committee of China, met Ethiopian Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Demike Makaden uh, just uh, two days ago 
China and Ethiopia are good brothers going through thick and thin, good friends looking out uh, for each other in times of need, and good partners seeking common development, Wang said. China stood with the Ethiopian people at the critical moment when Ethiopia was preserving its national peace and stability and will continue to stand by the side of the Ethiopian people as the East African country enters a new stage of restoring peace and national reconstruction. Wang said China firmly supports Ethiopia in safeguarding its national sovereignty and territorial integrity, supports the country in fulfilling its commitment to national solidarity and stability, and supports uh, it in playing a bigger role in regional and international affairs, he added. China is willing to continue strengthening strategic coordination with Ethiopia to deepen pragmatic cooperation in various fields, jointly defend the fundamental interests of the two countries and the common interests of developing countries, and safeguard the basic norms of international relations, Wang said. Highlighting the enormous potential for cooperation between the two countries, Wang said China is willing to work with Ethiopia to strengthen high-level exchanges and contacts between different departments and at various levels, support well-positioned and creditworthy enterprises to invest in Ethiopia, accelerate the implementation of major cooperation projects, expand bilateral trade, uh, help Ethiopia promote industrialization and agricultural modernization, and enhance its capacity for self-generated development. Wong said it is hoped that Ethiopia will take practical and effective measures to ensure the safety of Chinese institutions and personnel in the country. China is willing to work with Ethiopia to jointly implement the outlook on peace and development in the Horn of Africa and support the African people in resolving African issues in the African way. For his part, Makanin said that Ethiopia has a long history of developing relations with China and is firmly committed uh, to strengthening cooperation with China at bilateral, regional, and multilateral multilateral levels. Ethiopia appreciates China's help in safeguarding its national security and stability and expects China to support the country in consolidating peace, carrying out reconstruction, and revitalizing its economy, he said. Ethiopia supports the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initiative, which were proposed uh, by China and is willing to strengthen all-around exchanges between governments, political parties, and enterprises, and deepen mutually beneficial cooperation in the fields of economy and trade, uh, Makanin said. Ethiopia resolutely opposes interference in the internal affairs of developing countries with human rights as a tool supports participation and collective cooperation among developing countries, and is willing to work with China to implement the outlook on peace and development in the Horn of Africa so as to promote regional peace and prosperity, Makanin has said. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, blogs, and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to 
uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website uh, at the panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, July 23rd, uh, 2023, go to our website, uh, and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. And you can reach the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, July 23rd, uh, and of course, uh, this is the year uh, 2023. And the whole question of uh, fuel subsidies uh, on the African continent uh, has come to the fore uh, just in the last several months with the ascendancy of a new administration uh, in the Federal Republic of Nigeria and also reports from the Republic of Angola that uh, fuel subsidies have been eliminated. Of course, uh, both uh, countries are facing uh, considerable uh, inflation, uh, as is the entire international community. We want to uh, listen to a report uh, on the question of fuel subsidies uh, in Africa. Let's listen in. A number of African countries have dropped subsidies on fuel, triggering debate on the timing and merits of their action. Angola had some of the highest fuel subsidies in Africa, and their removal resulted in fuel prices almost doubling. President Tinubu's announcement that Nigeria's fuel subsidies would be scrapped led to a steep rise in fuel prices and widespread panic buying. The immediate consequence of the removal of fuel subsidies has been a hike in fuel costs and a further rise in the cost of living. This week on the program, we examine the pros and cons of fuel subsidies and the consequences of their removal. We also explore possible alternative economic measures governments may put in place to bring down the cost of living. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. In the last few years, more African countries have scrapped their fuel subsidies. Before we begin our discussion, my colleague Robert Nagila takes a look at the cost of these subsidies to some countries across the continent. Crippling debt, a surge in borrowing costs and high fuel prices are forcing African countries to rethink costly fuel subsidies. In January, the government of Senegal announced a phased withdrawal of subsidies in the energy sector by 2025. Fuel and electricity subsidies accounted for about 4% of the country's GDP. In March this year, the Ghana National Petroleum Authority announced the country had already implemented regulatory measures including the removal of fuel subsidies to ensure stability across the downstream sector. Nigeria's president, Bola Tinibu, announced in May the end of fuel subsidies in the oil-rich nation. In 2022 alone, Nigeria spent $10 billion capping the price of fuel. The World Bank estimates that subsidy removal and scrapping foreign exchange controls will save Nigeria $27 billion between 2023 to 2025. Further south in Angola, the Ministry of Finance tabled a proposal in June for a phased reduction of fuel subsidies beginning in the second quarter of 2023 to 2025. The ministry blamed fuel subsidies for negatively impacting public finances. Angola spent 
$2.3 billion on fuel subsidies in 2022 alone, accounting more than 40% of what the IMF estimated it spent on social programs. And in September last year, Kenya ended the fuel subsidy program. Kenya's President William Ruto said the government had spent $1.4 billion in fuel subsidies. Zambia, meanwhile, withdrew fuel subsidies in 2021, part of an agreement with the IMF that saw subsidy spending fall from 2.4% of GDP in 2021 to 0.4% in 2022. Now, the big question is to subsidize or not to subsidize? Joining me to examine the pros and cons of fuel subsidies in Africa are from Bournemouth in the UK, Edwin Ikwaria, an international development and policy advocacy expert. From Johannesburg, Kanyisa Fika, economist with Alexander Forbes Investment. And in Nairobi, Dr. Job Omagwa, an economist and lecturer at the Kenyatta University School of Business. Welcome everyone to the program. Kanyisa, if I may start off with you, over half the countries in sub-Saharan Africa subsidize fuel to protect consumers. What are the main objectives and rationale behind implementing fuel subsidies in African countries? Why were they put in place initially? So I think the rationale, or rather the, the, by design, um, fuel subsidies are meant to be a short-term alleviation, um, and that is to cushion economies from uh, a downturn and allow them to be able to find their feet in order to uh, recover. But mainly, fuel, price, uh, fuel subsidies also support consumers in the sense that a lot of the production in, in, in Africa still happens in fuel inten or energy-intensive sectors. And by having a subsidy, you're able to uh, reduce the price that people actually pay for goods and services mm -hmm. and also transportation costs to uh, get to work and, and, and also to transport those goods. And that, I think that is the, the reason for, the main reason of keeping uh, a, a few subsidy. And also it maintains um, manageable inflation or reduces inflationary pressures and allows um, consumers to continue to have strong purchasing power. So, Kanyisa, there may have been a short-term solution, but if you look at countries such as Nigeria or Kenya, um, Angola, the Nigerian uh, fuel subsidies have been in place since the 70s, Kenya's fuel subsidies since like 2008, so they're not really been a short-term solution for African countries. Why is that? I think then it becomes a political play because you know, you want your economy to be self-sufficient and you want um, governments to have fiscal space to be able to use those subsidies in a sense that would diversify the economies uh, and I think the reason why you find countries that have had it for longer than necessary for example have struggled to be able to remove it and I think it boils down to how it is then communicated for example during the severe stages of uh, the pandemic mm -hmm. in, in, in 2020 South Africa um, as those fuel prices started hiking quite rapidly, implemented this uh, short-term uh, fuel levy subsidy. And in that sense, it was communicated that, you know, the government had um, significant revenue overruns that it could actually support this, this move. And I think that communication was important 
important because then consumers didn't have to then think government would have this um, subsidy for a long term. And I think in that preparation, by the time the levy um, subsidy ended, right. everyone else was aware that um, that was done. But if it's a political um, game, then it be- does become uh, quite challenging to remove, and then you kind of have to have communication and have a gradual phase out uh, in order for the economy to be sustainably comfortable to actually take that blow. Edwin, let me get your view here. Should there be fuel subsidies, or should they be removed? Okay, I would say the answer, it depends. It depends on the context. It depends on the situation. It depends on the fiscal uh, strength of the country. Um, fuel subsidies, or not just fuel subsidies, subsidies generally uh, have been used by many governments across the world, globally, in, um, in the, um, the rich countries, the poor countries. Basically, like Kamisha uh, said, is to cushion the impact of volatility, right? So especially for fuel, because the, the international uh, mark price for, for, for crude goes up and down, you really want to pr- give stability to your people. And so you provide a subsidy as, in case intentionally it would have been short-term, but um, over time it has become a political tool because when people get used to a particular thing, if you remove it, and then it becomes really hard for people to adjust, and then so the, the, the debate begins to, to happen. But I would say fuel subsidies are not meant to be normal. They are meant to help to cushion the impact of volatility and prices and that's and, 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 and in that sense you can't say it is good or bad depending on your goal and depending on whether you can afford it so can you afford subsidies if you cannot afford it then you, it has to go but if you can afford it by all means give it to the people because ultimately the ultimate aim of government is for the benefit of the people so if it will be there and it can provide um, um, you know, means for, for the people to survive right. to weather a very terrible storm, then it can, it can have its better impact. Dr. Omagwa, your thoughts? Yeah, I similarly agree with the two panelists that uh, subsidies could be good and to some extent they could also be bad. The cost implications are far-reaching, but at the same time, governments need to get into these fuel subsidies as a way of achieving other economic goals besides the political dimension. Indirectly, some countries will engage uh, fuel subsidies to also improve on the disposable income of its citizens. The amount of money that eventually remains in their pockets is what really matters to an individual who earns income, pays taxes, and other statutory deductions. So subsidies may be good, but at the same time, we need to have them on a temporary basis. For countries that have extended these subsidies for a very long time, mm-hmm. it could be because of the political uh, dimension that they want to remain popular. It is very unpopular for citizens to find inflation biting into their pockets. Huh? So most countries would uh, always seek to maintain these subsidies as a way of remaining politically correct with the citizens, especially when they know that they are getting into re-election uh, soon thereafter. But at the same time, the sustainability of this uh, subsidy is another question altogether. Most of the developing countries are uh, experiencing budget deficits. So to push that burden further with subsidies is a a thing that takes them out of uh, uh, the trajectory of economic growth. So, Dr. Omagwa, you you mentioned that um, sometimes uh, subsidies have been used 
um, as a political tool, particularly in the run-up to general elections. I want to look at the Kenyan example here because Kenya's president, William Ruto, did talk about the subsidies when he talked about uh, removing subsidies from uh, the Kenyan economy. And he said subsidies have been costly and they are prone to abuse. What is Kenya's situation? Yeah, uh, that is very true that uh, the cost implications from the Kenyan case, for instance, is quite colossal because uh, uh, evidence indicates that the country has spent about 144 billion Kenyan shillings uh, on fuel subsidies alone. Uh, and in a space of four months to the uh, run-up uh, of uh, the end of this particular subsidy, the country spent about 60 billion uh, Kenyan shillings uh, on the fuel subsidies. Uh. So the removal of the fuel subsidies, in my opinion, in the Kenyan case was uh, justified mm -hmm. on the premise that, one, uh, the country was uh, not being in a financially uh, stable position to continue providing this subsidy, considering that uh, in the 2023-2024 Kenyan budget, right. the country has a deficit of about 718 billion Kenyan shillings. Eh? So to add to that pain will be continue with this particular subsidy. Now, the Kenyan government had to find a solution because it had to engage uh, United Arab Emirates for a government-to-government -government arrangement to import fuel for Kenya right. in a scenario where at least three oil marketing companies in the United Arab Emirates, which are state-owned, would identify one oil marketing firm in Kenya whom they would engage to procure oil for the country on credit uh, to be paid up within 180 days. Uh. Previously, in the previous arrangement, the oil marketing firm that won the tender to procure right. the oil, uh, the fuel on behalf of the country, would only have five days to clear up that particular debt. So there was also a very major strain on the foreign exchange reserves of Kenya. The dollars were becoming very scarce as time went by, and the country had to make a decision to move away from the subsidies and uh, opt for an alternative arrangement, uh, uh, which would be to procure through a different option. So let, me, so let me look at Nigeria's scenario as well, Edwin, because the fuel subsidies there go back to the 1970s. And Nigeria's uh, President Bola Chinubu called the move there a necessary sacrifice. Do take us through the primary arguments for removing the fuel subsidy in Nigeria. I think it's exactly the same thing for all African countries. Uh, the, the, the one that Dr. Job just talked about in Kenya, it's exactly the same thing. The bills are just unsustainable. It's just not possible anymore. What do I mean by that? Nigeria spent in 2022 96.3% of its revenues on debt service. I, I need you to think about that number. So, so for all the monies, all the revenues that was accruing to the government of Nigeria in 2022, 96% of it was spent to service debt. That is the situation. So within that situation, it doesn't, it doesn't make economic sense to continue to borrow to feed consumption. That was the primary argument because it was not just, the money was not just there. It is not, basically you're borrowing to, to do subsidies. It, it doesn't make economic sense. So that's number one. The second part was that it's not just basically it wasn't just about deficit. It was just about the fact that there is no money there. And in fact, because they were not able to pay uh, uh, pay this, the, the the subsidies, it was deducted at source. So the, the Nigerian National Oil Company that was working with oil manufacturers, oil majors to export oil, 
basically they do this oil for um, uh, swap, oil swaps. Basically, we give you crude, you bring in um, impo uh, refined petroleum products. Right. And for that, then you deduct the cost, including the cost of subsidies. So what it means is that huge billions of dollars that are supposed to accrue to the Federation account was lost to subsidy at source. If the money just wasn't paid to the Federation account because of subsidy. So there, were, there, there was that. The final piece was, again, as mentioned, corruption. The question is that you, you, there, there, were, there were all kinds of numbers being bandied around the country, that about 54 million liters of fuel is consumed daily in the country. 54 million liters. Right. And this is the basis for which um, subsidy is calculated. So now the question is that because it is not market-driven, because it is, uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, opportunity to export because of the price cap, so people will import fuel cheaply because of the price cap. They will sell it to neighboring countries for a premium. And people were making a hell of money out of that. And so it was just not sustainable. It was making some people richer. It was really prone to corruption. Right. And it was, not, uh, it was physically devastating for the economy. So these were the reasons why it had to go according to the government. And indeed, um, economically, it makes sense. But of course, it has consequences. And I think that's where the problem is. All right, uh, we are going to take a short break uh, and we will be looking at the social networks when we come back. When we come back as well, we will look at some options African governments may have to lower the cost of fuel and by extension, the cost of living. To stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me are Edwin Ikwaria, Kanyisa Fika, and Dr. Job Omagwa. Before the break, we looked at the impact the removal of fuel subsidies is having on African countries. Let's now look at some alternatives African governments may have to keep the cost of the fuel down. Kanyisa, have governments, though, in your view, done enough to limit the impact of the removal of fuel subsidies on the society? Well, I think you know, governments try to do as much as they can depending on where they are in the election process. Um, and, and you'll find that it becomes more creative when it's closer to election time. Um, you, you know, countries such as Mozambique, they've tried to, you know, introduce transportation vouchers to be able to still, because, I mean, it is about cushioning that blow or economic blow to, to consumers, right? And also meant, uh, um, anchoring that inflationary pressure that comes with um, runaway fuel inflation. So I think there's different ways that governments can explore how to, you know, manage uh, and uh, re the removal, the gradual phasing out of mm -hmm. these um, subsidies. One of those is to, you know, in have an investment structure that will support how they uh, invest in infrastructure and, and other transport-related areas uh, and be able to subsidize mainly on the agricultural side because, you know, high fuel costs tend to always uh, uh, be uh, carried through to consumers through consumer goods that are purchased. And when you are able to support that and be able to invest in 
related sectors, I think it would make it gradually easy to make the transition to renewable energy resources and have a, a, a solid and committed uh, energy mix that can support uh, an economy so that uh, you don't necessarily have to rely only on fossil fuels. And I think, I mean, globally, even rich countries still have these fuel subsidies. So we're not saying the removal has to be abrupt. It has to be gradual and it has to be communicated well so that the private sector can also step in into investing in those sectors that can actually um, support um, uh, goods production and, and, and the transportation thereof. Oh, Dr. Omagwa, you are watching what's happening in Kenya. Let's look at some of those uh, alternatives that Kaisa is mentioning. Are there alternative policy measures or some strategies that can be implemented to address this particular affordability of energy as well as bring down the cost of living, which is you know, becoming a byproduct, uh, an impact of the removal of fuel subsidies? The Kenyan government is uh, putting in place several measures to try and uh, cushion, especially home those whom they refer to being at the lowest end of the pyramid by coming up with so many friendly measures to try and cushion them from the harsh economic uh, times. And one uh, is uh, to ensure that, uh, especially since most of them are into agriculture, and by the way, agriculture contributes about 21% of the Kenyan GDP as per the economic survey for 2023. Uh, Once the production inputs are well cushioned by giving them tax incentives, rebates, and the likes of fertilizer subsidy, we expect that uh, the cost of production will be much lower. In addition, governments will also opt for other alternative measures of cushioning the citizens. Uh, in the education sector, for instance, they will opt to give free primary or free secondary education. That is one way of ultimately ensuring that there is uh, some extra coin in the pocket. When it comes to other sectors like uh, transport, uh, governments are doing something in terms of even introducing public transport, which is owned by government in the long run, especially among cities, uh, to try and cushion the citizens. uh. But ultimately, uh, the problem to do with fuel subsidies, as much as they do away with fuel subsidies, it is very unlikely that most of these governments can actually achieve that objective of ultimately ensuring that the citizens are well cushioned. If you look at the case of Namibia, for instance, when the government did away with the fuel subsidies early this year, Mm -hmm. uh, the opposition politicians and the civil rights activists actually went to the streets and they had demonstrations. The Kenyan case, there are demonstrations which are all centered around the high cost of living. It has to do much with the problem of uh, rising fuel prices. So at the end of the day, uh, fuel remains a thorny issue in the flesh for most of these uh, African governments right. as they seek to improve the economic welfare of most of its citizens. Right. Uh, Edwin, what's your thought? So I think in terms of alternatives, the question is that can they afford it? Can they afford uh, this subsidy in the first place? If they cannot afford it, they, have to, they will definitely want to let it go as quickly as possible. But that exactly is the problem. The problem is that many of these countries who are removing subsidies are not doing it gradually. And I think I used to mention that. Mm-hmm. It is the gradual removal that would have been less um, uh, uh, you know, terrible for the, for the poor, such that as you're taking it out, you're replacing it with public services. With the little savings you're gaining, you're putting it in public services. And then people can then, you know, they see the alternative, but they know what they're gaining as well. So in this case, but I think the most fundamental problem, and I think Dr. Magua mentioned this, is the issue of trust. 
can we trust the government today when you do a survey, Afrobarometer survey, looked at it across the continent, more than 67% of Africans do not trust their government. So when you say you're taking away subsidy, where citizens have already felt that this is the way, this is our share of the, natural, of the national resources, and then you take it away, and they, they, they don't really trust that you can really put it to alternative, better uses. So that, that's one. And this is, these are some fundamental points about what kind of communication happens before you remove the subsidy. In the Nigerian case, the Nigerian Labor Congress is, was, very, was vehemently against the removal of subsidy. Why? Wow. Because they felt that the underlying factors um, to, to make this uh, uh, withdrawal was not done. For instance, why can't Nigeria refineries work? in the first place. So why can you not put, what do you put first? Do you just remove subsidy or do you want to try to make sure that the conditions that led to these high prices will be taken care of first? And that's where, that's what, this is what has been mismanaged. And this is why it, it's really very difficult to think about alternatives, especially when the fiscal burden is so high. And that's why it's a really, be, be caught between, being caught between the, 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 the dead blue sea or what they call it, the, the, the sea and the hard place. <laughs> rock and a hard place. Thank you. So it's a difficult one, but, but that's, that's the reality we have today. But in, 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 in summary, a lot of fundamental work needs to happen, uh, even uh, in order to make it succeed. All right. I want to get your final comments and very briefly from all of you. And I'll start off with you, Kayisa. What do you see as the long-term benefits of facing out fuel subsidies in terms of economic stability and social development in Africa in the long run? For Africa as a whole, our biggest issue is sustainable economic growth. And you want to get to a position that when we are phasing out these um, uh, fuel subsidies, governments have the fiscal position um, to be stable, um, have fiscal consolidation that allows them to be able to be creative about how they diversify their economies going forward. You want to be able to invest like um, Edwin has said, that you want to be able to own your refinery processes. And that's where investment can actually go into, and that in the long run, in fact, will reduce um, your, your prices. For a country like South Africa that is a net importer of Brent crude, it does become quite serious that we have a, a stable economy, uh, even on the political side, because mm -hmm. then our dollar exchange rate in, in fact, affects the kind of uh, inputs we can get. And, and, you know, you want sustainability over time. But also I think what is important is as the world moves into um, an energy mix that affords renewable energy, we need to start thinking about how we can, um, you know, reduce our fuel consumption or fossil fuel consumption and right. and have those EVs come through. Um, because otherwise then we, we need to think about when, our biggest import, uh, trading partners like the EU, for example, saying by 2030 they want to phase out any cars that are fossil fuel. Uh, a region like South Africa that has an automotive industry that is quite strong that exports to those markets will definitely be in trouble in a few years if it cannot diversify its energy mix. Dr. Magua, your view? I think as most of these African countries uh, resort to do away with some of these fuel subsidies, they must not lose sight of the fact that uh, good governments must always endeavor to do that which is good for the majority of its citizens. Huh? So as they take away the fuel subsidies, they must always ensure to supplement uh, 
the citizens uh, by improvement of social welfare programs, healthcare, education, manufacturing, agriculture, amongst others. But yet again, as much as the international crude oil prices keep on rising, fuel will always remain to be a problem, and most of these governments must seek to find a long-term solution to this big problem, which is very, very key, because fuel is a key factor in production, agriculture, transport, among other sectors. Edwin, on the long-term benefits of phasing out fuel subsidies, very briefly. Investments. I think the first thing is that if your market is deregulated to the point where there are no price caps, then investors can bring the money in. And if they do that, then we can, then we can like Kanisha said, we can diversify the production base. And that means creating jobs. When you create jobs, then people can afford it, right? So if you take away subsidy, when, but, but people are working, people are, are earning, earning salaries or they're able to produce, then it will be, it, the, the whole economy grows for that. So foreign investment is one key point. But it also affords an opportunity uh, in the long term to, to create you know, uh, new sectors in the mm -hmm. sense that once people know that uh, fuel is so, is so difficult, then they can transit what we call the energy transition. They can transit into other sources of energy. In Nigeria, for instance, there's already a campaign on changing uh, our cars uh, from using fuel to compressed natural gas. Mm -hmm. Those innovations, so electric-driven electric public transport system, those kind of diversification itself boosts the economy. So those are the, we are hoping that in the long term, this removal will then create this, uh, uh, allow for this diversification, allow for investment to be there, and then we just remove all the market distortions that we see. All right. Uh, thank you all very much for a lively discussion. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, Edwin Ikwaria, International Development and Policy Advocacy Expert, Kanisa Fika, Economist with Alexander Forbes Investment, and Dr. Job Omagwa, Economist and Lecturer at the Kenyatta University School of Business. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter to also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. And keep this conversation going and join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, it's the bye. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on uh, the use and implementation and cancellation of uh, fuel subsidies uh, in various uh, African nation states. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday. Well, today is Monday, um, July 24th, uh, 2023. And We've been broadcasting live for the last couple of hours uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Carla Thomas uh, from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, with a track entitled No Time to Lose. And this is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, during the early morning hours of Monday, uh, July 24th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, just uh, 56 years ago uh, marked uh, the beginning of the Detroit Rebellion of 1967, which began on July 23rd of that year. Uh, Detroit, of course, uh, represented a high point uh, of uh, black uh, resistance uh, during 1967, and it was not alone. Uh, rebellions erupted in some 164 localities uh, throughout the United States uh, during the course of that year. And uh, what we're going to listen to now is a rare archival audio file featuring a panel discussion uh, that was uh, organized amid uh, the rebellions of uh, 1967 during that summer. It features uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, This uh, was recorded in late uh, July of 1967, uh, where some eight months later, Dr. King would be assassinated uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, while supporting a sanitation worker strike. Roy Wilkins, who was the then executive secretary of the NAACP based in New York City. Dick Gregory was also on this panel, uh, who had been a civil rights activist and later uh, ran for president the following year in 1968 as an independent and also uh, became a a figure in the anti-war movement uh, during the Vietnam War era. Let's listen uh, to this important uh, panel discussion from the summer of uh, 1967. We've given a few minutes for the photographers, the amateur photographers, to have their play, so we'll ask them please to uh, uh, give us a play now, and after it's all over, why they can have another shot at this distinguished panel. May I say in opening this meeting that the first part will not be on television. The second part will. I invited to participate in this panel the most distinguished leaders of the Negro and white community who have dealt with big city problems that I could possibly envisage. Immediately on my right is Dr. Martin Luther King. On his right, is Mayor Ivan Allen of Atlanta, Georgia, who has done so much for racial understanding in that city. On his right is Roy Wilkins, the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the oldest organization in this country, which has fought valiantly for years for a better understanding between the races. And immediately on Mr. Wilkins' right is the famous Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory was uh, actually as a late starter. I talked to Dick last night. He's coming in tonight to entertain us at the dinner. We didn't expect him so early this morning. We're delighted to have him here. And uh, he's not going to participate in the panel discussion, but he will liven up the questions afterwards. And 
immediately on my left is Mark Evans of Metro Media and Channel 5 in Washington. Now, we are going to start in just a minute with a discussion from the three members of the panel, which will not be on television because we wanted to get uh, a more comprehensive study of this vitally uh, important and so difficult problem as riots and the race problems of the big city. And then after we have heard from the panel, we will then go on television and they will summarize their remarks briefly for the purpose of the, for the sake of the television audience. And then the, the audience will then participate through questions which you will ask from the floor from these two microphones. When you ask the questions from the floor, please be careful in the first place not to make too much congestion down here. We may have a traffic problem. And second, please keep the questions brief. Now, I think that's all that uh, we need in the way of introduction. I want to express my personal thanks to the three members of the panel for coming here. Uh, Dr. King, I have known for some time, and I suppose there's probably, it's, it's a rather trite saying when uh, you introduce people to an audience, uh, a speaker to an audience that a man needs no introduction. I suppose of all the people in the United States next to the President of the United States that uh, Dr. King needs no introduction, Dr. King. Thank you very kindly, Mr. Pearson. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me say that I'm delighted to be here and to have the opportunity of being a part of this very significant occasion. And certainly it is a great pleasure to uh, share the platform with my very good friends, Mayor Allen, Roy Wilkins, and uh, Dick Gregory. Certainly in these days of emotional tension, uh, when the problems of our nation and the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, it is certainly necessary to have broad understanding and to have creative dialogue in order to discuss the problems and try to deal with the root causes. I'm going to make a promise, and that is that I'm going to be very brief because we've got to get on with the discussion, and I can assure you that brevity is a magnificent accomplishment for a Baptist preacher. <laughs> I want to make my remarks on the basis of what I would... Uh, use as a subject, and that is the other America, because I think this is the chief problem that we face today in our cities and the chief problem that we face in our nation as a whole. And I use this uh, subject because we 
do literally have two Americas. One America is beautiful for situation. In a real sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of opportunity and the honey of prosperity. This America is the habitat of millions of men and women who have food and material necessities for their bodies, culture and education for their minds, and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. And in this America, little children uh, grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But the great problem that we face today is the fact that there is another America. And that is a kind of daily ugliness about this other America that transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this other America, thousands and thousands of work-starved men walk the streets in search for jobs that do not exist. In, in this other America, millions of people are forced to live in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this other America, thousands and thousands of boys and girls are forced to attend overcrowded, inadequate, substandard, qualityless schools where the best in their little minds can never come out. And so often they end up finishing high school every year by the thousands, reading at a sixth and eighth grade level, not because they are dumb, not because they don't have native intelligence, but because the schools are so overcrowded, inadequate, and devoid of quality that they are not able to rise to their full potential. Now, in this other America, we find uh, a lot of people, some are Appalachian whites, uh, some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are American Indians. The vast majority, in proportion to their size in the population, is the American Negro. And so the <coughs> Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto of human misery. This, in a real sense, is a great problem that we face in our nation today. When the Constitution was written, a strange formula to determine taxes and representation declared that the Negro was 60% of a person. Today, the Negro is only 50% of a person. Of the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad things of life, he has twice as many as whites. Thus, half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and Negroes have half the income of whites. Now, when we turn to the negative experiences, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The infant mortality rate is double. Uh, 
that of white, and twice as many Negroes dying in Vietnam in proportion to size uh, in the population. These are facts of life which we must recognize. Now this has made for a great deal of bitterness, a great deal of despair, a great deal of discontent in the Negro community. And it is out of this despair, it is out of this discontent that we must understand what is happening in our cities today. It is out of this that we must understand what is happening with reference to the riots. Now, I think everybody knows my views about riots. I raise my voice over and over again against them because I feel that riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. My belief in long violence is not in nonviolence is not something new. Uh, it has been a commitment on my part for many years, and I've tried to keep it not only at the forefront of my thinking, but at the forefront of our struggle for freedom and justice. And over and over again, I've said that we must struggle passionately and unrelentingly for first-class citizenship, but we must never use second-class methods to gain it. Now, after saying this, I think it is just as important, and this is where we often find the missing point, it is just as important for those who condemn riots to condemn the conditions which continue to exist in our society that cause people to engage in this kind of self-defeating action. And so... And these are the conditions that are here and that must be dealt with. And I say today that as I condemn riots, I'm, just, I'm going to be just as firm in condemning the Congress of our nation. For that Congress has revealed that it loves rats more than the Negro citizens of this country. That Congress has revealed... <laughs> That Congress has revealed that the poor had no right to hope because it was that Congress that uh, cut off uh, the rent supplement bill and that Congress also cut back the model city's proposal. And these things have led to a great deal of disappointment and legitimate uh, discontent. The other thing that I must say is that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so it is still true that our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as justice is denied, as long as justice is postponed, uh, we will find ourselves facing these moments of social disruption. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of 
riot prevention. What is needed today is something massive, a massive program to get rid of poverty, to get rid of the blight of our cities, to get rid of slums. It cannot be a token program. It must be a massive program. One of the great problems that we face in the Negro community is that the Negro still finds himself perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. And whether we realize it or not, certainly many people know it, but all too many people don't know it. The Negro is facing a depression in his everyday life. I've been working in Cleveland this summer, and I walk the streets of Huff every week, and I find there thousands and thousands of young men, young women, older men and older women, devoid of work. The unemployment rate is 15.8%. 58% of the young men of Cleveland are either, young Negro men are either jobless or making incomes below the poverty level. This is happening all over the country. Now, that is nothing more dangerous than to build a society with a large segment of people in that society who feel that they have no stake in it, who feel that they have nothing to lose. And it is time for our nation to take a stand against unemployment and underemployment. And we were in the midst of a staggering depression in the 30s. We met this problem by bringing into being the WPA. Here we tailor jobs to men, not men to jobs. In other words, we said jobs first, training later. We made it possible for thousands and thousands of unemployed people to go to work. Now it is time for us to develop anew some agency that will provide a job for everybody who needs a job, man or woman, white or black. The other thing that I would like to mention is that there is a need for something like a guaranteed annual income for every American family. We can continue to debate this, but the need now is to challenge or rather attack poverty directly and not indirectly. And I think the way to challenge it or to attack it directly is uh, through a guaranteed annual income. And this, I believe, will lift thousands and thousands of people, Negro and white, uh, from the shackles of poverty. John Kenneth Galbraith has said somewhere that this kind of guaranteed annual wage would uh, cost the nation only about $20 billion a year. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but when we look at some other things, we discover that that isn't that much money for a nation that can spend $35 billion to fight what I consider an unjust, ill-considered war in Vietnam, and $20 billion to put a man on the moon can suddenly spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on earth.
And so these are some of the things, there are many other things I could say programmatically, but the time is limited. And so I conclude by saying that we have the challenge to get on with the job of making the American dream a reality. And I say something finally in the realm of the spirit, and that is that there must be a recognition on the part of all Americans that we are tied together in a single garment of destiny. In other words, white Americans and black Americans must realize the mutuality of their destinies. Whether we like it or not, our language, our cultural patterns, our material prosperity, and even our food are an amalgam of black and white. And so there can be no separate black path to power and fulfillment that does not intersect white roots. And there can be no separate white path to power and fulfillment short of social disaster that does not recognize the need to share that power with black aspirations for freedom and human dignity. We all need each other. The Negro needs a white man to free him from his fear. And the white man needs a Negro to free him from his guilt. John Donne put it in graphic terms years ago. No man is an island in time itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And then he goes on toward the end to say, Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And so we must see... This basic togetherness, we must see that we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And together we will set out to build a better and a greater America where every man will respect the dignity and worth of all human personality and where we will join hands and live together as brothers. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. King. The city of Atlanta, Georgia, is, has long been one of the most model cities of the United States in its race relations. Long ago, more than 20 years ago, the chief of police, William Jenkins, integrated, well, it was considerably over 20 years ago, integrated the police force. And last night, President Johnson appointed Chief Jenkins as one of the members of the panel to investigate the problems of riots in the big cities. I now call on the man who has so valiantly worked to keep Atlanta and make Atlanta, given it this enviable position, Mayor Ivan Allen. Thank you very much, Mr. Pearson. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Pearson, fellow panelists, ladies and gentlemen. I speak as the mayor of a great southern city that is confronted with the same problems, recognizes these problems, and is trying to do something about it as the other national cities of this country. We are confronted with an almost impossible situation. The only hope 
within the ability, the limited ability and competency of the cities to eventually solve the problem is to have both national definition and national assistance at a federal level. We have been ignored generally by the states who have been interested only in highways and a limited amount of education. Today, the cities of America, the national urban centers, growing rapidly, find themselves inheriting from the rural areas of America and the small cities of this country a great host of citizens, most of whom have been subjected to lack of political and civil rights, who are uneducated in many instances, who are impoverished, who are lacking in health facilities, who haven't had jobs, who haven't had adequate education, and they are moving into the central cities of America for the simple reason that there is a glimmer of hope in which they expect to receive that which they have not had in the rural and small-town areas of this country. The cities of America have no ability to control the input of people that are rapidly moving into them. In Atlanta each year, some 10,000 impoverished, poor, uneducated, mostly Negro citizens from the rural areas of the South move in. Unfortunately, with the artificial boundaries which have been imposed on us by state legislatures and with the inability to expand, we find that the affluent citizens, the wealthy, the educated, the able, those most competent at the present time to furnish leadership merely pack up and move to the comfort of the suburbs and ignore the problems that are being created by this great host of people that are moving in. We find ourselves today confronted with the problems of insufficient services. In every American city, there can be no question but what through the past part of this century that the needs of the poor, mostly the Negro, have been ignored. We haven't furnished equal services. Today we find ourselves with the problem of trying to step up these services, furnish them, provide better housing, do all of the things that are necessary. The cities are extremely limited in income. We have nowhere near the amount of funds nor the capabilities of passing the tax laws restricted by the states that are absolutely necessary to provide the services that a whole and fruitful population should have. These are the magnitude of the problems that American cities are confronted with today. I make no apologies for the leadership of American cities. They are the result of the structures of government that have been developed over a long number of years and which historically move behind the needs of the people and only under great stress finally accomplish what is needed. But this is a grave national problem. It must have definition at a national level. The Congress can't wait for local governments to try to cope with a problem that can only be met on a national level. There's no better indication than what happened in the cities of America when we went through the Civil Rights Crusade. For years, 
the Congress and the federal government, after the uh, Supreme Court ruling, sat there and twiddled their thumbs while local communities tried to solve the problems of integration. We never had a chance in the world. Every time Atlanta took a step forward in the problems of integration, and I know Dr. King, with his familiarity with the problems of Atlanta and other southern cities, will bear me out. Every time Atlanta took a step forward, the dozens of small communities on the periphery, in selfishness and with other disregard for the rights of human beings, profited by the progressive steps that it, the central core cities were trying to take. And they said to the people, move out here, move away from the central core cities, let, it, let all of the poor, let the Negro move into the central core cities. And this was the problem we've been confronted with. Obviously, at this time, what the President of the United States said last night must be our goal, law and order in a democratic society must come first. But it would be ridiculous, foolish, stupid, and insane for America to hide its head in the sand now and hide merely behind a facade of law and order. We must... <laughs> we must find out why American citizens have not been full-fledged American citizens and have conducted themselves as they have in a disastrous fashion in Newark, Detroit, and other cities. We must attack the problem. If someone came to me as out of with a great host of money and said, what would you do starting tomorrow to solve the problems in Atlanta? And if I looked on this as the same instance as a national goal, I would say, that the cities of America, and Atlanta particularly, where I have the greatest knowledge of any locality, I would say that we have to mount a massive, complete attack to eliminate in the next three to five years the slums that make up the major American cities. I would say that... I would say that if... I had the finances and the backing and the capabilities to build 20,000 low-income units in Atlanta during the next three to five years, and by virtue of providing a decent place to live with three qualifications, I would eliminate the slums, and the three qualifications would be that these 20,000 units would be widely dispersed. I wouldn't attempt to destroy present residential neighborhoods, but I would say that they had to be widely dispersed over the city. I would say, number two, that as I spent some $300 million in Atlanta, as I invested some $300 million in Atlanta to build 20,000 low-income housing units, that they would have to be built with a large percentage of personnel in the construction industries coming from the slum areas where these people live today and where the unemployment is the highest. And this would be a qualification. <laughs> Number one, they're dispersed. Number two, that they would employ the people from the slums and that we would gain five years in employment. And number three, that we would be making an investment, not an expenditure, in the future. To me, the answer is fairly simple. The Congress must mount an all-out attack 
It must mount an all-out attack in the field of housing. We say today the problem is as simple as housing, jobs, and employment. These are the three fundamentals. We must mount an attack in the field of housing in order to have adequate, capable job capabilities and to be able to properly educate people. And if the Congress of the United States would provide a five-year program of 20 or $30 billion a year, and this wealthy country can well afford to do this because this is not an expenditure. This is an investment in the future of the country. We could eliminate the slums. We could provide adequate educational facilities. And above all, we could give the people, provide for all of the people in these areas an adequate field of employment. I think this is the very guts of the matter and that we cannot hide <coughs> our head in the sands and that we must move forward vigorously in a simple attack to eliminate the problems that we've been building up and developing for the past hundred years. This I say, and I thank you for listening. Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I'm Ivan Allen, Jr., Mayor of the City of Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Roy Wilkins, and I'm Executive Director of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. I am Dick Gregory, and I feel that I am a nonviolent, passive revolutionist. <laughs> My name is Mark Evans. The gentleman you have just met and you are about to meet face-to-face. edition of Face to Face. The long, hot summer has been marked by race riots of such violence and unprecedented number that every citizen among us must consider the cause and the cure his personal concern. Thanks to the cooperation of the International Platform Association, meeting here in convention at Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington, D.C., Face to Face is bringing you an exploration of this explosive problem. Drew Pearson, nationally syndicated columnist, is responsible for bringing to this platform the distinguished men you have just met. Now, let's meet Drew Pearson. Drew, would you give us a little bit of the background of the association? First, uh, I understand you've been its president. Uh, you are now its program chairman. Just a word uh, about the history and its purpose. Well, the International Platform Association was founded approximately 75 years ago by my father, William Jennings Bryan, and other speakers of that era. I thought you said your father was William Jennings Bryan there for a few moments. No, they were friends. Oh, I... this, this was in a day before the microphone, before television, when the platform was the symbol of free discussion. And the, the members, it was a trade association, still is to some extent, the members 
believed in pre-discussion, they used the platform as for speaking, for music, entertainment, and this is still the case. And we believe in discussion. The audience here primarily is made up of professional lecturers, amateur lecturers, and uh, those who appear on platforms all over the nation. For the most part. Thank you very much, Mr. Drew Pearson. We're going to have some discussion now between some of these members of the panel, and each will make a, a brief summation of that which they have said in a, a short talk prior to our having gone on the air. And we'll have that right after I share this message with you. At a most appropriate time, this distinguished panel are appearing before a large gathering here at the Sheraton Park Hotel in Washington. All America and all the world is concerned about the riots that have taken place in our cities. As has been stated previously, these gentlemen have made some brief talks prior to our having gone on the air, and we're going to ask them in summation to point out the major points they wish to emphasize. And I'll turn first to Dr. King. The problems of our the cities today are very great, and the problems of Negroes living in these cities are equally great and extensive. Some 92% of the Negroes of the United States find themselves living in cities, and they find themselves living in a triple ghetto in these cities on the whole a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, and a ghetto of human misery. And by the thousands and even millions, Negroes find themselves unemployed and underemployed. The young people find themselves attending uh, segregated uh, schools that are so often devoid of quality, and thousands and thousands of Negroes in these cities are forced to live in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. All of these conditions have made for great despair, and so many of the people who find themselves caught up in the agony of their daily lives end up with the view that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. These are the people who, in moments of desperation, find themselves engaging in the riots that we have seen taking place in our country. And even though most of the people who are in these hopeless situations do not riot, it is now necessary for all to see that a destructive minority can poison the wellsprings from which the majority must drink. And so it is necessary for the nation as a whole to rise up now and find answers to this deep social problem. They must be answers that are real and honest, and they must be answers that will lead to positive and massive 
action programs, programs that will spend the necessary money, the billions of dollars, to get rid of the blight of our cities, to get rid of the slums, to eradicate the poverty, to make uh, integrated quality education a reality. And I believe that with this kind of commitment, we can solve the problem. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that we're in a moment of crisis, but every crisis has not only its danger points, but it has its opportunities. And it is my great hope that America at this hour will see the opportunities and meet them head on and stand up and make the American dream a reality. Thank you, Dr. King. Now, Mayor Ivan Allen of Atlanta, Georgia. I support the position of the President of the United States who stated last evening that in a democratic society, law and order must be maintained at all costs. Locally, I will attempt to do this through the protective forces of the city of Atlanta. Lacking the capabilities, I'll have no hesitation to call for the National Guard or in the rare instance to ask, if necessary, for federal troops and intervention. I will not, however, hide behind just a facade of law and order. We must recognize that the deep problems that have created these unlawful acts must be solved. I would propose that in order to solve them, that we mount a massive attack on the slums of America, that we provide the necessary funds over a three- to five-year period to build the necessary number of low-income housing units that would eliminate the slums. I would qualify that by saying that incorporated in the program, we should provide for hiring the people that now are unemployed in the slums in this building program. The units should be widely dispersed, and we should provide a decent place for people in this country to live on a minimum standard that would make it possible to qualify them for good jobs and to receive the opportunities of education. Thank you very much. Now, Mr. Roy Wilkins. The primary necessity, as I see it, is for us to resurrect uh, a phrase from the report on the Watts riot of 1965, a phrase that unfortunately has been ignored. The commission there recommended that the problems be attacked with a revolutionary attitude. That meant, if I understand the language, that our approach to the problems of the slums and of the minorities must not be business as usual, must not be routine, must not be bound by tradition, must take into account the cost only in the light of the results to be obtained. If we can spend $20 billion for war, if we can revive a whole continent of Europe, underwrite the economies of Germany, France, Italy, England, and see that these people recover their equilibrium, then we can underwrite the cost of recovering the equilibrium of our own native black people. Now, This is not easy, and it will not yield to impatience or tantrums or foot stamping or accusations. 
but it must yield to a revolutionary attitude in schools, in housing, as Mayor Allen has suggested, and in employment. We have got to recognize that we have 20 million black-deprived people here. We have several more millions of white-deprived people, poor people. And if the richest nation in the history of the world cannot solve the problem of living for its own people, then we deserve to go down the drain. We won't, of course, because we will solve it. Thank you, Dr. Wilkins. Now, Dick Gregory, please. I'm going to have to talk very fast because I have to fly out of here shortly to Kansas City, Missouri, to help out a friend of mine, a white cat that just moved into an all-colored neighborhood. <laughs> and some colored bigot burned a watermelon on his front lawn. You know, when you look at the amount of humor sometimes, it gets very frightening when you stop and think that our Senate and Congress did not pass an anti-rat bill, but they passed an anti-ride bill, which means that our Senate and Congress might be more anti-Negro than anti-rat. I'm sitting here with some gentlemen that I've met in very strange positions, Mr. Drew Pearson, who helped me feed people in Mississippi with a... $150,000 worth of turkeys one Christmas, and I would say, and I say this with qualifying authority because I've spent over $300,000 doing research of this problem, and I would say that offset violence in this country six months. Dr. Martin Luther King and I met in jail under strange circumstances. <laughs> it's funny than that. We got arrested on Good Friday morning, and when I checked the cell block Easter Sunday, he was gone. <laughs> I had the good fortune of being in Maryland's jails in Atlanta, and I say this in all sincerity, that I am very thrilled when I heard that they picked Brother Jenkins to serve on the board with you, because out of all the jails I've been in, this was the only jail through his police commissioner there that you didn't feel like fighting when you come out, and I'm glad that he's on that board. Mr. Wilkins here, we met, uh, we was trying to feed some people in Mississippi, and in one day's time, my introduction to him is he helped me sell $16,000 worth of records in one day's time. And I am very nervous sitting here for the first time in my life, because you are sitting here looking at two men that is the most powerful people in this country today, because what they will come up on this commission will decide if America will survive or not. And this is how important this is. Our faith and destiny of this country surviving lies in these two gentlemen's hands. This is how important this commission is. And if they do not do the job, this country is in trouble. I listened to the President's speech last night. I, I felt that we should have had a Negro co-chairman because I know what's going on out there in the street and I know how that ghetto brother feels. We have Roy Wilkins sitting here who has one of the most brilliant minds, one of the most ethical moral men in the world. Uh, Alan, to me, is not a politician. He is a statesman. I feel we should have had... <laughs> I, 
I feel we should have had a militant Negro on there, whether you like it or not, because we're fighting for survival now. I also feel that we have too many politicians on there. We're in the time of crisis, and I don't say this to be little, and we need more statesmen. Statesmen flex their minds, and politicians flex their muscles. And I feel that we should have had more psychiatrists, more philosophers, more sociologists, because we are in trouble in this country, believe me. And in, in summing up what I want to say, that the first thing this commission should do, the first thing is to get a national document signed by the president to apologize for the South, that we in this country blame the South for this filthy race problem for 100 years. And now the whole world knows it was America's problem. And as the South was blamed wrongly, they reacted by lynchings and bombing. The Negro have been blamed wrongly. We've been blamed for all of the ignorance, all of the wrongdoing, and we acting just like the Southerners. We tan up buildings and we're doing everything. Follow the parallel, please. The South needs to be apologized because this is a national problem. And I hope you will see to it that they will do that. If we treat this problem the way we treat a slum building that burns down, when the fire commissioner shows up, the first thing he says, we're going to check into it and see what caused it. If we check into these explosions and see what caused them, instead of talking about looters and hoodlums, check and find out what caused it, because you're aware of a spirit, a theory called spontaneous combustion. You put dirty, oily, greasy rags in a closet, you close the door so air can't circulate, nature's going to take care of the rest. You can call those rags ignorant, you can call them nigger, you can call them coon. If you don't have enough wisdom to open up that door, it's spontaneous combustion. The black ghettos in this country today is America's oily, dirty, greasy rags. And we'll have to call at that point. Thanks very much, Dick Gregory. We, uh... We'll have plenty of opportunity as the program progresses. We hope that uh, the audience will participate later in this program we're going to ask them to do, and we hope that they will be abrasive with their questions, because I think that's the best way to get information from these talented people. We'll pause for just a moment and return. Convention of the International Platform Association met in convention here in Washington, D.C. at the Sheraton Park Hotel. We have a distinguished panel from whom you've already heard in their summation statements. I'd like very much to throw this question out for you. I find that you agree more than you disagree, and I would like to ask this question inasmuch as you have placed most of the blame on poverty in the nation, and I'd like to quote a man, I haven't got permission from the copyright owners, but he's within my arm's length here, and I'm going to ask a question which he proposed in a column recently, where he said, no one thought it could have happened in America, because we are directing our thoughts to what caused the race riots. What, in a city, it did happen in a city which completely integrated, where Negroes had lucrative jobs in the auto plants, the only city in the United States sending two Negroes to Congress, in Detroit. Negroes and whites for many years have lived side by side. Most of them owned their own homes, 
Walter Ruther years ago had welcomed Negroes into the United Auto Workers, making it one of the most completely integrated unions in the nation. The state of Michigan has probably the, is the leader in, in the civil rights movement as far as legislation is concerned. So the question now comes up, why riots? Here, it seems, a city has taken the lead in the model city situation, poverty programs, name it. Would you care to answer that, any one of you? I think riots are, again, we just can't say why the one city. I think Abraham Lincoln told us in 1857 when he made a speech and said, when you have succeeded in dehumanizing the Negro, when you have put him down and placed him where the ray of hope is blown out as in the darkness of the damned, when you have extinguished his soul in this world and placed him where the ray of hope is blown out, are you quite sure the demon you have aroused will not turn and rend you? We was warned in 18... Well, my question is, the, the arguments that you have used as the reason for the race riots seemingly were on their way to being taken care of or had been taken care of in Detroit, and yet this has been probably the worst example of a riot in our American cities. Well, when we well, think would, to, Dr. King? Well, I was about to say uh, I would question whether the problem has... Uh, been taken care of in Detroit in a thorough, massive sense. Now, certainly, Detroit has made uh, some significant progress, and I would be the first to say that some of the conditions that I've seen in some other cities are not as great or in as intensified form in Detroit, but I think we would have to admit that Detroit has the same problems that, are, that we find in other cities. In other words, there is still a great gulf between Negro income and white income. That's true in Detroit. It's true in all of our major cities. The unemployment rate, as I said, is uh, twice as high. Now, that's true in Detroit. I didn't know the figures on it, but it's about uh, the same as we find across the nation. Negroes are twice uh, more, there are more uh, Negroes unemployed than whites. Now, these conditions are there. Even though the gulf may not be as wide in Detroit as some other cities, the gulf is there. Why should the violence be so much greater, then, in a city that has made more progress than any other? Well, this is always one of the facts of history that we must face. Progress whets the appetite for greater progress. The nearer you get to the goal often, the more determined you are to get there. And I think we must recognize this as a sociological fact, that often progress itself whets the appetite for greater progress. And if it isn't fast enough, then the, the, the despair sets in, and this can lead to the kind of violence that we've seen there. May I ask this question? Does anybody else want to handle that, Dr. Wilkins? No, I, uh, I think that's what this commission was appointed to find out, why it happened in Detroit. And uh, I'd rather display my ignorance before a small audience than a large one. <laughs> because this year has been such a dramatic year, and because it was predicted to be such a dramatic year, is there, in your opinion, any outside influence that has whetted this? I think uh, in, on that question... I, for one, will have to accept the um, judgment of the Attorney General of the United States. He has more investigators than I have, and he has a bigger payroll than I have, and he has access to more information than I have. And he says there is no evidence of a conspiracy. So that, uh, that it seems to me we have to proceed on the assumption 
that the causes lie within the cities themselves. That nobody from outside came in, nobody uh, underwrote it, nobody conspired to do it. Now, if the Attorney General isn't telling us the truth, then we'll find that out sooner or later, and then we can decide what to do about the Attorney General. Mayor Allen? <laughs> I do not think that these are outside forces except within the United States itself. I do not think that they're communistic inspired or that there's a plot on the part of Russia to create a revolution in this country. I don't think so at all. From the limited experience that I have seen of minor incidents in the city of Atlanta, they usually come about from some act of provocation where there's a difference of opinion between someone who's uh, probably had a little too much to drink and a police officer who may not handle the thing judiciously all the way through. And then with uh, a few of the normal agitators that have come out of groups like SNCC, uh, they can build these things up into a fire. And this apparently got started in Detroit. Perhaps certain forces did not move rapidly enough. Perhaps it was not met strongly enough. Uh, but it, by the time it builds up and gets going, well, then it takes massive forces. I do not feel that these are outside influences that have come into America to create these situations. Do you find any significance in the fact that uh, one of the most militant has now shown up at uh, Mr. Castro's right elbow? Or maybe I should say his left elbow? Well, he's now gone to... <laughs> he's now gone to Cuba. That's all right. Well, he... Different. I think that there is an outside influence, and I think in America we better see it, and that outside influence is the Declaration of Independence, which say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, and when these rights are destroyed over long periods of time, it is your duty to destroy or abolish that government, and if people follow that to the letter, then that could be the influence. Are you satisfied with this question? Do you have any comment on Mr. Carmichael's action uh, that it, uh in connection with the previous question, Dr. Wilkins, Mr. Wilkins? No. Mr. King? May I ask uh, this further question? It's interesting to me, and Dick Gregory may have answered it. It's interesting to me that the violence in the North has been far in excess to the violence in the South, and yet we have always been told that the Southerner has been the most antipathetic towards the Negro. To what do you attribute this? Mayor Allen? Excuse me, Doctor. I think that uh, basically there are two causes for that. Perhaps one is that there's more of an inhibitory respect or uh, force of the police department in the South, uh, uh, that this is still uh, an in, uh, inherited quality that's come down through the years. And the second thing is that probably the most dissatisfied and the most misused citizens uh, or half-citizens of the rural areas have moved into the East. And this has been more of a transient population uh, the South has had uh, Negro citizens for years, uh, many of whom have acquired good homes and own them themselves. Atlanta has a major Negro business community. We have a certain stability that perhaps does not exist in the East in these ghettos that have developed over the past 20 years. Any further comments, Dr. King? Yes, I think there's another important point to be added to that, and that uh, is in the realm of uh, explaining the legislative and judicial advances that we've seen over the last few years from the Supreme Court's decision of 54 uh, right on through the Civil Rights Bill of 64 and the Voting Rights Bill. Now, these uh, legislative and judicial developments gave a great deal of hope uh, to the Negro, and it is very important to see 
that they rectified long-standing evils of the South, but they did very little to improve conditions for the millions of Negroes in the teeming ghettos of the North. In other words, they did very little to penetrate the lower depths of uh, Negro deprivation. And I think that we must uh, see that the North finds itself in that position now of seeing retrogress, not progress. At least in the South, the Negro can see pockets of progress. But this isn't true of the Negro in the, in the Northern ghetto. He sees retrogress in the sense that the masses of Negroes find themselves in a worse economic situation now, and the progress that we've made economically has been mainly on the professional level, middle-class Negroes. So Thank I think you. we have to see that these things did not apply in the northern ghetto, and this made for a great deal of uh, despair. Mr. Wilkins, do you have something to add? No, I, think the, I think the reason we've had, uh, one of the reasons that's not frequently cited, and perhaps I get in trouble by citing this because it goes to a very touchy subject that arose last year. In the South, we still have a great deal of Negro family stability and control uh, and, and community control of families and the imposition of standards of uh, conduct. In the North, with its great uh, anonymous cities. Uh, Negro families come there, sometimes they're disintegrated, but even where they're not, they are lost in a huge population. The minister doesn't keep tabs on them like the minister did in the small town back home. They don't know the police chief and they don't care. They don't know the judge and they don't know the things and the controls that operated in their home community. And when they come to Harlem, they're just John Smith, and they can do as they please. They don't have to pay any attention to mom and pop and the minister and the neighbor or anybody who knows about them and helps to control them. So they run wild, some of them. Others busy themselves going to night school and doing all the things that other people do. I think this is one of the reasons we haven't had as much... Uh, Whatever trouble we've had in the South has been the struggle to get the rights. In the North, it's been the struggle to, uh, to make the North give us what they say we're supposed to have. We have just... Dick Gregory would like to add a comment, but Dick, before you, I wonder, you, you understand this language better than the rest of them. We have to pause for a brief yes, message. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to turn to the audience. Uh, we're not on the air right now, but... Uh, May I urge you to be orderly as you come forward, and uh, uh, we will designate either side uh, to ask the question. However, Mr. Gregory has one final uh, uh, comment on the previous question. Again, uh, if you have compliments you want to pay by way of applause, don't hesitate, and uh, don't be afraid to make your questions as abrasive as you want, because I think that's the way we make for uh, more enlightenment. All right? All right. We're ready.
Name the state from which you come. And again, we urge you, no speeches, just questions, and short questions. And if you'll listen carefully to the previous questions, we won't have any repetitions. Thank you. All right. Platform Association at the Sheraton Park in Washington are about now to ask questions of our panel. However, in courtesy to Mr. Gregory, he had a final comment on the last question. Yes, I think the last question will be the most important question the Commission will deal with. With all of the Southern white man's viciousness, he was always honest with the Negro, which just affected me physically. In the North, he was never honest with me, which affected me mentally. And a man that had been affected mentally will tear up a town. That is the answer. Thanks very much. Now, to our audience. We turn to the gentleman to my left. Please, your name and the state from which you come, sir. I'm Henry G. Allen from the state of Mississippi by way of Louisiana, and I hope I'm Tater Fast Kennedy, mayor up there. He sounded good. My question is to Mr. Wilkerson. Uh, he's been an honest man through Louisiana and got LSU integrated, and he came to Jackson last year, and they wouldn't let him march because uh, he rode in a car. Uh, that's what the Jackson Daily said. And he said we were here before the parade, and we'll be here after. We remind you, no speeches, sir, if you just make the question. Yes, the question is, have you got back Mississippi yet? You're doing a good job. Yes, sir, I've been back to Mississippi, and I'm going back there and very shortly. Thank you very much. Now to the right, lady. Uh, June Orlick from New York State, and my question is directed to Mr. Wilkins. Earlier you said that uh, Negro children require special teachers. What kind of teachers do you think can effectively teach them, maintain order in the classrooms, and where do you get those teachers? Are you a teacher? Uh, I have done some teaching, yes. I suspected as much. Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion of uh, July, late July 1967 uh, on the African-American national question inside the United States. And, of course, that was uh, aired uh, on the 56th uh, anniversary of the 1967 rebellion in Detroit, uh, which took place uh, within the context of many other uh, rebellions uh, during that particular year. That's going to conclude uh, our program, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for July 23rd, Monday, and the early morning hour of July 24th, Monday of 2023. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out with the music of John Coltrane from the album entitled Jupiter Variation. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.